John mean when he talks about Jesus as a light that has come into the darkness that the darkness could not overpower? We'd been in John all year, so we just sort of went back in, dipped back into some stuff we'd covered together, brought it out, and tried to apply it to Christmas. This week, I want to stay on the light imagery, what it is to have light in the midst of darkness, but take it one step further and actually take it one step beyond the Gospel of John and into the first letter of John. John didn't just live with Jesus and then write about all the things that he experienced. He also tried to apply the news of Jesus to people. He was a preacher. And in his letters, it's one of the most effective ways of doing that. He, he wrote letters to help people understand in the circumstances they were in, how Jesus made a difference, the Jesus he, he wrote about in the Gospel of John. And his first letter pulls on a lot of the same themes that he talks about in the stories of Jesus in the Gospel of John, including the themes of light and darkness. What I want to do this morning is help us understand that, that Jesus as light in the world, as light that the darkness can't overpower, isn't just about what he did when he came, and it isn't just about us looking ahead to what he will do when he comes again to wipe away darkness once and for all. It's also the calling of all Christians to walk in the light that Jesus is, to reflect it like a, a bunch of mirrors in the world, to, to bear witness to that light while we wait on him to return. So Christmas is not just something we celebrate, it's something we're called to. We want to understand what that is, what it would mean to walk in the light. Using 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11 to help us. That's what we're going to focus on today. I want to read that passage before we get any further. 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John, very, near the very end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's Word as I read. This is the Word of the Lord. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Two steps I want to take this morning to understand this passage, to understand what it is, what Advent and the celebration of Christmas calls us to as those who live for and in the light. Two steps. I want to understand what John means by this old commandment made new. I want to understand first how the old command became the new command. And then the next step we want to take is to understand practically how to walk in the light of Christmas. He's calling us to walk in the light. How do we walk in the light of Christmas that this season represents? The light of, of Christ come to us. So first, how did the old command become new? That's verses 7 and 8 that we read. 1 John chapter 2, 7 and 8. And this is where John seems to be kind of talking back to himself. So he's writing to tell them what they have to do if they want to walk in light of what Jesus has done. The first couple chapters of 1 John are all about trying to weigh whether or not you really are with him. How would you know if you were just sort of self-deceived or if you really were with Jesus? 
And John is saying, the way to know is if you walk in the way that he walked. If you're with him, you'll look like him. And now he's using this light and darkness imagery that he's always used about Jesus to talk about how people should follow Jesus. He says that what he's telling them when he tells them to walk as Jesus has walked isn't new, but an old command that they'd heard from the beginning. And it's no mystery to us what he's talking about here. He's talking about the command to love one another. Now, it, it's no mystery in part because he's going to talk about love in verses 9 and 10, but, but it's really no mystery because he uses the same exact phrase one chapter later. If you're, if you're following along in the Bible, look over probably one page more in, in, your, in your copy of the Bible to chapter 3, verse 11. And he says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. All right, same language from, from verse, uh, verse 7 here. It's an old commandment because you've had it from the beginning. All right, here we go again, verse 11 of chapter 3. This is the message you heard from the beginning. Want to know what that message is? It's that we should love one another. There it is. It's an old command because they got it when they got Jesus. From the very beginning of their life as Christians, they'd been told that what it meant to be a Christian was to love other people. It's an old command because Jesus himself hammered that theme in his teaching. We covered it a couple months back here in, in John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In fact, this is how people are going to know you're with me if you have love for one another. It's not a new command, it's an old one. You can go even further back than that, though. It's an old command because it summarizes the law. So All the, all the law that Israel had and had been taught and trained in uh, from, from birth was summarized in the command not just to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to love your neighbor as yourself. It's an old command, not a new one. But then in verse 8, John says that it is new. So what's new about it? At the same time, it is a new commandment I'm writing to you. How did the old command to love one another become the new command of Jesus' followers? Verse 8, here's what John says. It's a new command because, you see that key word? He's about to explain it. It's a new command because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. The reason the old command is new is that something new has happened in history. Some light is already shining that wasn't shining before. And in its shining, the darkness is passing away. When Jesus came as a light into the darkness, what we talked about last week, John chapter 1, the old command became new. And here's what I think he means. Here's what I think he means. I think what he's pointing to is a radically new illustration of love. We've always had the command to love each other. That's not new. Now we have a model that we've never had before. Now we have a vivid, high-definition, blazing light that shows us what that love is supposed to look like. It's what Jesus meant back in John chapter 13 when he said that they should love even as he had loved them. It's what John is pointing to in the verses just before ours this morning when he says that, what it looks like to be with Jesus, verse 6 of chapter 2, if you really do abide in him, then you ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You've got to look like him, his model. 
what he has done to show us about himself is what makes the old command new. It's the fact that he has shined as a light. So the big question is, what is this picture that Jesus has given us of what love looks like? How has he loved us? What is this light that he brought, the light that's already shining, that shows us in a new way how to love each other? And we said a lot more about this last week, all right? So I'm just going to I mean, barely touch on it this week. I'm going to leave you to your, uh, on your own time. You can listen to what we talked about last week. The whole sermon was about the light that Jesus brings into the darkness. But we can summarize it here. It's the message of Christmas. It's plain and simple. The light that's already shining is the message of Christmas. That God, the God who made us for himself to reflect the beauty of his character, the God whom we have all rejected on every day of our lives, this God looked down on us and saw us as the people who walked in darkness. He saw us stumbling around not knowing what to do with ourselves. He saw us living in the narrow blinders of our pride and selfishness, not able to see the joy that comes from living for him, from trusting in him and giving ourselves away. He saw us blind to what makes for a truly meaningful life, wandering around in search of meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment, chasing empty promises like some sort of carrot on a stick that is always just out in front of us or that if we do grab it, turns into nothing more than paper that just collapses and leaves us empty. He saw us as a people walking in darkness of our sin and our sorrow, knowing that we deserve even worse than what we get. And what did he do with us? Not what we would have done. Not what I would have done. What I would have done was point the finger. But he took on flesh. What I would have done is say or think to the person walking in darkness, you should be more like me. But he became like us. What I would have done is thought inwardly maybe, congratulated myself that I don't have the problems that you have. But God took on our problems as his own. He didn't keep a safe distance. He didn't pass judgment on us as a detached observer from the safety of his own holiness. He entered in. He identified with us. And he made himself our rescuer. What he did, what he did, in, in fact, is summarized in the first two verses of First John, John chapter 2. You want to know how he walked? You want to know what light Jesus brought? The light that's already shining? The light that we're to walk in? Verses 1 and 2 describe it. If anyone does sin, and we know from earlier in this book that everybody does, that the one who claims otherwise is deceived. If anyone does sin, maybe a better way to say it is, when you sin, we have an advocate. We have one who is with us and for us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. How has he loved us? The one sinned against has taken the punishment of that sin. 
These are legal terms. Advocate is one who stands for someone else before a judge. Propitiation is a term about wrath, about someone taking what is meant for someone else to absorb the cost that their failure, their sin, their crime demanded. Jesus has seen us where we are in our, in our mess. He has come to us and put himself in our place. Justice required that God stand over us as a judge. And the consistent message of the Bible is not one we should try to clean up. He is our judge. He must be. And we long for it. Because there is no justice that any sex trafficker, any human slave driver, any sort of, uh, any sort of uh, serial killer out there is going to get that doesn't also punish us at some level. God must be judge for any justice to be possible. But he has become so much more than our judge. He has also become our advocate, our lawyer, the one who stands in for us, taking our problems and failures as his own. So when he stands before God, God sees him. He stands for us. His words are our words. His righteousness is our righteousness. And our sin is heaped onto him. It becomes his. That's the light that's already shining as the darkness passes away. This is what he gives to those who don't deserve it. And if you abide in him, and here's the key. This is where we want to really drill down. If you abide in him, John says in verse 6, you'll walk in the way that he walked. The old command to love one another has become a new command because the light of the one who came as our advocate is already shining. And it's in that light that we're called to walk. So what does that mean? How do we walk in the light of Christmas? That's what we want to really drill down on. Advent, I've said this already, it's, it is not just a season of longing for his coming in the future or of remembering and retelling about his coming in the past, but it's a time that we seek to bring more of our lives, more of what we think and what we love and what we do, bring more of ourselves into line with his coming, with the fact that he's come. We want to bring all of our lives into the light of his coming. So, John tells us, the meaning of this, that, of this way in which Jesus has loved us is pretty clear. Verses 9 and 10. Whoever says he's in the light, whoever says he's with Jesus, abiding in him, but hates his brother, is in the darkness. But whoever loves his brother, he's in the light. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So how do we live in the light that's already shining? In the light of Christmas, of God with us? Consider chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know it by loving each other. But we need to say more. We need to get more specific about what this sort of, this sort of light, reflect, light reflecting love is supposed to look like. So think of yourself as a mirror. The calling is to walk in his light, to abide in him, to be a mirror that reflects the beauty of his light to everyone who's looking, to everyone in your sphere, okay? That's your calling. So what would that look like? What, what would we have to be like if we were going to reflect what he is like? 
John loves contrasts. We've been seeing that. Just the light and the darkness is just one example of the contrast he uses to try to teach us. So in that theme, in that vein, I want to use a couple of contrasts of my own to try to help us see what we would have to be like if we want to love like Jesus. If we want to see more clearly what our calling is in light of Christmas, two contrasts. Here's the first one. We have to grow to see ourselves as advocates and not judges. To love as a testimony to the good news of Christmas means we've got to see ourselves as advocates and not judges. Now, now, I'm hardly the first person to say that we shouldn't judge one another, right? Uh, that there's maybe no more staunchly held moral conviction in America today than that we should never impose our own convictions or question somebody else's convictions. That isn't really what I mean when I say that we shouldn't be judges. I'm thinking of something else here. I'm not, saying we should, I'm not saying we should pretend like everything is okay. Like we should treat one another as if no one needs anything to be different about their lives. In fact, in churches, we're at our best when we assume that things won't be good a lot of the time that everyone isn't fine, that we belong to a community of Christians because we know we're not okay, because we need each other to see ourselves clearly and to help us grow. I'm I'm not saying that we don't acknowledge that we aren't what we should be when I say we should not be judges. What I'm talking about, what I think John is talking about, when I say that we should be advocates and not judges, I'm talking about our posture towards each other when we do see that we're not okay. When we do recognize weakness or blindness or failure or sin, when we see it or even are affected by it from somebody else, I'm talking about what our posture towards others should be when we, when we see the inevitable not okayness in ourselves, okay? We ought to be advocates and not judges. Here's what I mean. Let's say, let's say you see somebody in the church I'm just talking about within our own church now, but you can apply this wherever you want to, but just for the sake of illustration. Somebody in the church who you recognize doesn't care as much as they should about engaging the Bible. They just don't seem to want to learn more about God and what he said. Can't seem to be consistent in it. Or they, they don't seem to be reaching out as much as they should be to people who are unengaged. You wish they would be more active in trying to help others. They don't serve others in need in the same way that you do. They don't spend their money in the way that you think is gospel-centered. Maybe they, you know that they shouldn't be so angry or they shouldn't be so apathetic or so unforgiving or so self-absorbed or so, so prone to gossip or complaining or whatever it is that you might notice. Let's say you're right about them, that they do have that problem. The judge says you should be different than what you are. And what the judge means, often, is that you should be more like me. The judge is guilty of what John here calls hating one's brother. That language is strong. And because it's so strong, we almost never think it's talking about us. Right? I don't hate anybody. Right? When we think of hate, we think of wanting to hurt someone or wanting to maybe even kill them. Hate is what leads to murder. That's not what John means. He just loves strong words. 
What he means, I, th- I think we can see it in, in another place that this word is used. Jesus actually uses it in his teaching in Luke. And he warns his disciples that they're going to be hated by the people that know they're with him. And then he goes on to say what he means when he says that others will hate you because you're with me. He says that, 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 that their hate will be that they'll dismiss you or reject you. They'll exclude you. Hatred here is a walling off of oneself from the other person because of their need, because of their wrong, their failure, their sin. Hate is, is anyone who looks at someone in their not being what they should be and stays back, walls off, points fingers. Here's how one commentator put it. Whoever, whenever a brother has need and one does not help him, then, was, has, then one has despised and in fact hated his brother. This year, uh, one of the books that I've really been wrestling with in the last few months is uh, it's actually a classic. I just haven't gotten around to it until now. It, it, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. It's an excellent book. Really worth the time it takes to, to wrestle with it. There's just one passage in there that's been really on my mind a lot lately. He's helping me see what it is to be judges rather than advocates of each other, how dangerous and toxic that is in a church community. And and here's the way he puts it. When we judge, we encounter other people from the distance of observation and reflection. Think of a detached observer, of a scientist almost, looking through a microscope at something that he he or she is protected from. When we judge, we encounter other people from a distance. But love, love does not allot time and space to do that. For those who love, other people can never become an object for spectators to observe. For those who love, other people can never be objects that you observe from a distance. Instead, Bonhoeffer writes, They are always a living claim on my love and my service. What's he getting at? When we see another person's flaws as a judge, we remain detached. We stand back. We don't want to get in on that, right? Something, we, we observe something other than us as if it was under a microscope. Judges stand back and stand over another person. But love doesn't allow that kind of detachment. For the other, love doesn't allow for the other person to remain other than yourself. Love as Christ has loved turns that same person into an advocate, turns us into an advocate for them who stands with and for that person. We're not their judge, we're for them. We're in it with them, representing them, helping them, trying to encourage them, trying to live with them where they are until they become what they ought to be. We see ourselves as responsible for what needs to happen in them just as Jesus has come to us. It makes no more sense for a Christian who understands the light of Christ to talk of another Christian in this detached way than it would make sense for uh, one spouse to say that their spouse has a marriage problem, right? As if the problem was only them, as if the marriage weren't theirs. To love as Jesus loved, the God who has come to us in our darkness as a light, to love in that way is to take on each other's problems, to go further in, when we see something isn't what it should be. We are not the standard someone else has failed to fulfill. There is no standard anyone else has broken that we haven't broken too. And there's no righteousness in us that is not offered just as much to them as a gift from the same place that we got it, from Jesus and Jesus alone. 
A judge sees a flaw and says you should be different. But the advocate or the lover sees the same flaw and says, how can I help? What can I do for that person where they are? The lover enters in. The lover takes on the problem, absorbs the cost of that problem, and then seeks redemption in and through it. Because you know what? The light is already shining and the darkness is passing away. Our God has come for us and he's called us to reflect that light everywhere we go in every relationship we ever have. We're advocates, not judges, if we want to walk in the light of Christmas. And here's the last one. For us to have any hope of loving as advocates instead of judges, for us, in other words, to be transformed so that we no longer do what's natural to us, which is to judge, and we become advocates that take on other people's problems. For us to ever get there, we got to see ourselves as advertisers and not customers. There's your second contract. Uh, contrast. Advocates, not judges. Advertisers, not customers. Now, I get it that I'm shamelessly and probably a little cheesily drawing on the images of the holiday season here. Uh, but here's what I mean. I think there's something to it. Remember, our calling, what John's calling us to here, is to walk in light as a reflection of Jesus' light to other people. We want them to see him. So we've got to be like him. So that when they see us, they're seeing his light, the light that's already shining. That's the new command. Love each other as a way of helping others see Jesus' light. That's what I mean by advertiser here. Like we see ourselves, our primary calling in life is to make Jesus look good. We want others to see how beautiful he is, even as reflected in broken mirrors like ourselves. We are advertisers more than we're customers shopping around for a new product. When we come to church or to relationships or to anything in life as customers, then, then what's natural in us is to get fixated on what we're likely to get out of this or that product that we're about to take into our life. We remain detached from that product, evaluating it to see if it's worth taking on. Went shopping yesterday for, uh, with the boys for some Christmas gifts, and Walter was really fixated on this, uh, this golf accessory to get for, for my dad, his granddad. It's one of these extendable golf ball retrievers. You guys seen these things? And you just, it just keeps getting longer. And you twist it and you pull it out and you pull it out. And you can reach down into the, into the pond to get the ball and, and save it. You know, if you're really cheap and you don't like losing golf balls, it saves you, you know, maybe five or ten bucks a year. I don't know. Walter really thought it was awesome. So he wanted to get this for, for my dad. And so we got it. We get it home and we realize that one of the joints is broken. It just keeps twisting. It won't ever lock. So this thing is just, it's useless. And as a customer... I'm still detached from that product, right? And now having seen the flaw in it, that it isn't what it ought to be, what I'm going to do today is take my receipt with this product back to Target and get another one. I'm going to trade it out for one that works. And that's right, right? In this case, I am a customer. I don't owe this product or this, or this uh, department store chain anything. I'm a customer who gets his needs met or doesn't do business there. And so much of our life fits into this category. We have so many choices, so many options as consumers in the world that we live in. More options than any other people in the history of humanity. So that what comes natural to us is to be customers, even in the way we relate to each other. So we're evaluating, we're detached, we're holding each other back up into the, the, under the scrutiny of our microscopes to see 
can I handle this mess in my life? Or is, is this person going to bring something to me that I can't get elsewhere? Is it going to be a value add? Or is it going to be a mess that I can't contain? And then you decide whether or not you want to buy. That's really natural. But it has nothing of Jesus in it. Because what did Jesus do? How has Jesus loved us? He has come to us as the light into the darkness, taking on the problems of others, the brokenness of others as his own. Identified himself with it even at the cost of his life. He went to the grave knowing exactly what he was getting when he got us. And if we are going to see our lives as put here to make that sacrifice look good, then that means the way we relate to each other is not as a customer who's constantly wondering if we're getting what we should be, constantly wondering if this person can bring to me what I want, and instead see this person as an opportunity for me to sell Jesus to them. I want to advertise Jesus to this person. I'm going to treat them like the customer. And I'm going to try to sell them on what I know will bring them joy in this life and the life to come. That's my calling, to be an advertiser and not a customer. And friends, oh, if we could just get this into our minds, the implications for our church culture are incredible. Because what, we, what, what this does is, it takes, let's just take one example. It takes a situation where normally we might see someone who's in a very different place in life from us, right? This is very common in, in all churches and in pretty much any other kind of organization that you might be in. You try to look for people who are kind of where you are, who will like you because there's a great encouragement that comes from that. We should do that. We should have people in our lives who are right where we are. But a lot of times, we're only looking for that. But if we were... If we were advertisers instead of customers, we would look at someone who's in a very different place in life, maybe a different age, different interests, different kind of career. We would look at someone different from us, and the more different from us they are, what we would see in them is an opportunity, a remarkable opportunity to advertise the beauty of Jesus to anyone who's looking. Because what we care about in this relationship is less what you might bring to me as someone who's just like me and more what opportunity our relationship as people not like each other has for showing the world that there is something we share that is more beautiful than anything you were looking for somewhere else. The more the difference, the greater the opportunity to enter in and advertise Jesus, not just to that person, but to anyone who sees your friendship. An advertiser, a customer says, this person, I'm not likely to get much from this. An advertiser says, well, this is an opportunity to put up a billboard for the love of Jesus. A billboard for the one who came to those who were as far removed from him, as unlike him, as anyone could possibly be. But he became like them. An advertiser wants more people buying into Jesus and his beauty and recognizes, I saw it put this way recently, an advertiser recognizes that it is a far more precious thing to be around people who are like Jesus than to be around people who are like us. And it's my job to try to help anyone and everyone be more like Jesus. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning. 
Now, friends, that's our calling. I think it's pretty clear. What's also clear to us, though, is that, is that none of us, by nature, go for this, right? And, and we know from our own failure that we just can't love each other in this way, on our, in our own strength. And if we're ever going to become advocates like Jesus was, and if we're ever going to become advertisers who live their lives as a chan- as, as oper- looking for opportunities to promote his beauty, then what we're going to have, the only thing that's going to drive us, the only engine for that, is our own deep and abiding satisfaction in Jesus. Our own impassioned love for him. Our own having tasted as a way of life the beauty that is in him and in everything that he offers to us. If we aren't fascinated by the coming of the light, we will never be able to reflect the light when it's hard. So here's another way to think of your calling this week. Here's another way to think about the opportunity that Christmas provides us every year. And that honestly, our gathering together every week is meant to provide us with. We've got to pour fuel on the fire of our love for Jesus if we are ever going to be able to walk in the light. So what is your job this week? Whatever Christmas may mean for you this week, whatever the circumstances, family or otherwise, that will shape what your week looks like, I want you to think about this week as an opportunity to stir up in your heart affection for Christ, to pour fuel on that fire, because that fire is your only hope for walking in the light of Christmas in the way that he has called you. Fortunately, it is possible. Because when you love Jesus like this, you won't be able to help but reflect him where you go. God, help us. God, help us. Father, you have already come to us in Jesus. That gives us hope that you won't ever leave us alone. That even when we are not up to the things you've called us to do, uh, you, you came to us once before when we had failed you. Why not help us now? We trust that you have left us your spirit to give us the strength we don't have to love each other in a radically distinctive, light-reflecting way. So now we ask you, by the power of that Spirit, to, to glorify yourself in us and in our friendships. In Jesus' name, amen.